the world, and especially the state, now leaves no man alone. The claims of humanistic statism all over the world increasingly imply that no private, restricted, or exempt domain can exist. All things are subject to the control of the state. Even in the United States, far freer than most of the world, a man in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, had to go to court to defend his bone marrow from expropriation by a sick cousin. The amount of paperwork required today of every kind of organization in order to meet state, federal, county, and city requirements is now past measuring, even by tons. On all sides, we are confronted by a multitude of regulations, laws, controls, agencies, bureaus, and statist employees whose business it is to govern and control us. And the medical practice is no exemption to this will to control. R.J. Rushduni, Faith and Wellness. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Ben Uledalen. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. Great to be back on the show. It's been a little while. Yeah, gl- glad to have you. How is the weather out in uh, Idaho? Up here in North Idaho, yeah. Since I last was on the show, I've taken a call to serve as uh, pastor at Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church in Rathrum, Idaho. Things are uh, rainy and cloudy here today. Um, we had some snow a couple weeks back, so the mountaintops were covered and the uh, pine trees were kind of frosted. Real comfy vibes. Um, but uh, yeah, nice to have some moisture. Zellin, how about in uh, the tundra? Uh, the tundra is actually a little warm today, and I think that's bringing with it, you know, the usual sniffles and coughs, that sort of thing. Um, I know that I'm not feeling 100% today, but but things are generally doing quite well and uh, looking forward to the coming of actual full, full-blown winter as usual. What about you, Willie? How are things down in the the deep south, as it were. It's warm. It's very warm. Uh, we're we're going to hit 70 today, probably mid-70s, a little later in the week. So that's that's pretty nice. It just means that bugs get to live perpetually, but, you know, you can beat them back. Remember, we were, we were told to have dominion over creation, so I will not let a bug ruin my sunshine, as it were. Yeah, a very, very nice, uh, sunny and warm here in the natural state. Looks, sounds good. Well, guys, we've got a very important uh, topic today. It's going to be the conscience and the state. What can a Christian do? What must a Christian do? And what must a Christian, uh, how should we put this? When must a Christian rebel? When must a Christian say no? Issues of conscience, we've talked about on on the show before. Issues of conscience also very important because... If we begin to violate people's consciences, uh, we are, or forcing them to work against their consciences, rather, we are inviting them to sin. And so the Bible certainly has a lot to say about that. So, going to be a very fun episode. And, uh, you know, hey, maybe Ben, this is the one that gets us uh, canceled. So we'll see. Inshallah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now, you are in northern Idaho, and the one thing everybody. You know, everything that we know about Idaho points to the fact that they love the government there, they love statism, and they love to be told what to do. Is that correct? Yeah, especially when you see our state flag. That's the uh, that's the yellow one with the snake on it. That's our uh, that's the state flag of Idaho. <laughs> right. I love it. Uh, maybe the last truly free state left. I'm not sure. It um, could be. I mean, North Dakota's free, but that's only because it has all the nukes. Right, Zellin? Well, that's true. I mean, when you control the nukes, you control the world kind of a thing. All right. So, Ben, why are we going to talk about this today? Well, you know, with with the state of affairs in the world around us today, I don't really think I need to elaborate. But um, we as (laughs) pastors find ourselves lately talking to a lot of parishioners about various medical decisions or, shall we say, uh, coerced medical decisions, whether it's an employer well, I guess it's typically employer right now, coercing various medical practices or, or, um, or what have you. And so we've been wrestling with these issues. How does a Christian respond? Do we merely go along with this blindly? Do we merely say, well, Caesar says I need to take this pill or 
this shot or, you know, put this thing on my face? Or is there some room for freedom? Um, is there even more than that, though, maybe maybe a duty for a Christian to say, you know what, I shouldn't always obey every single, you know, authority in an absolute sense? Is there some idolatry there? I think that's that's kind of been my instinct. I mean, looking at that uh, that opening quote from from Rush Dooney, when we we see this um, relentless humanistic state just elbowing its way into every last facet of reality, I mean, including religion, including healthcare, is there ever time for the Christian to just say, you know, stop uh, this far and no farther? So I guess that's kind of the real world. Uh, situation here and what kind of sparked me to talk about this issue of the conscience. Um, Does Caesar or Baal, you know, have absolute claim over my conscience? Um, Is he absolute judge over my conscience? Um, Can he tell me, you know, what is always right and what is always wrong, etc.? Right. Well, for the folks at home, why don't you go ahead and tell them uh, what exactly is the conscience? Well, the conscience we see in Scripture, it's, it's a, a faculty maybe of spiritual discernment, and it works at least a couple of different ways. Maybe in kind of a reactive sense, once we've sinned, the conscience informs us that we have sinned. It tells us, hey, that, was a, that behavior was wrong. You need to repent. You need to return to the Lord. But there's maybe also a proactive use of the conscience as well. We see the apostles talking this way, St. Paul talking about endeavoring to have a clear conscience. Um, that comes up in the book of Acts. In, in 1 John as well, uh, you guys recently touched on 1 John, and there's the passage about, um, you know, I write this to you that you may not sin. You know, there's this sense where we can intend to not sin in, a, in, in certain behaviors. We can intend to resist certain behaviors or, you know, undertake certain behaviors. And so the conscience, I guess, helps inform us of um, proper behavior, but also informs us when we've sinned, when we need to repent. And maybe as well, you know, people talk about soul searching. Some of these people who've come into my office asking about various medical treatments being commanded by by employers, you know, they're doing some soul searching. They're listening to their conscience. They're trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong. What voice is the voice of the conscience, I guess? And what voice is God's voice? What voice is the voice of someone else, some uh, worldly humanistic doctor or boss or government official? Right. And it's not always the easiest thing to discern. You know, a lot of people want everything cut and dry as far as what is sin and what's not. Well, the conscience is there to actually help dictate that because the Bible doesn't spell out every ethical quandary that the Christian is going to have. You know, can you expand on that a little bit? How does one use their conscience? Well, you know, the, so the, as, you, as you brought up, it can be tricky to sift through what is my conscience speaking and I guess I, I need to back up there, too, and say the conscience can be wrong. I mean, we see that in Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians, um, we see, on the one hand, maybe someone with, a, with an immature conscience might sin and think it's okay. There's the example of the man who took his, what, his mother-in-law or his, his stepmother, who, who married her. And St. Paul, you know, he excoriates the Corinthians for tolerating this behavior. They celebrated it, you know. Um, so on the one hand, the conscience can be uninformed. The conscience can be maybe maybe naive. The Christian doesn't fully know God's word. Um, from Hosea, my people perish for lack of knowledge, right? But on the other hand, the conscience can maybe be overly sensitive. The conscience can think something sinful when it's not. So number one, just that the conscience itself needs to be bound to something greater. And of course, that would be to God Almighty and to his revealed word. And so I think the Word of God informs that conscience as well. I think the more we study the Word of God, the the greater understanding we have of it, that's going to inform our conscience. I think that's going to tell us, hey, this behavior that I always thought was okay and I thought I was free to indulge in, this behavior is actually wrong. You know, the, the, I can't find a chapter and verse in the Bible that says this is sinful, but my conscience bears me witness that this is, what, maybe an, uh, not a productive use of my time or this behavior or or this you know circumstance leads me into other sins or temptations so this is sinful for me. Uh so I guess that's partly why this can be a little bit 
tricky. And then besides the conscience itself, uh, maybe having mixed messages, we get mixed messages from the world around us too. Uh, think of the media. I mean, how many of us really think our own, you know, natural organic thoughts? I think a lot of what we think is something that's been pre-programmed and delivered through the media. So when I'm weighing through some medical question, you know, is it my conscience talking? Is it my feelings talking? Is it my worry about what maybe my my neighbor or my friend is going to think? You know, what what is, where do I go? What do I listen to? What voices maybe do I silence, if that makes sense? Mm-hmm. And that can be a very difficult thing for the Christian to do with so many voices around them and where perhaps maybe, you know, maybe in our our religious circle, the people have not grown up with the the scriptures in a lot of ways. And I mean, our circles, like in, in Lutheranism, we, we see this a lot where there's this kind of a culture in many, in many places of baptism, show back up for confirmation. You study the catechism for a couple of years and then, Hey, maybe we'll see you for a wedding or a funeral. And there's not a lot of grounding in the word that happens throughout the whole of life. If people are not in the word, then then their conscience can't be bound by it, but it will be bound by something else. And we've seen a lot of that, uh, where with the latest, with lockdowns or whatever it is, these are always cast in moral lights. So you, you're doing the moral thing. We've allowed things outside of the Bible, for example, to define a biblical term like love thy neighbor. and And people will willingly go along with that. Yeah, you know, there's no neutral morality. I, I think that's another uh, misconception that a lot of Christians have, that maybe when we're out in the public square, out in our Monday to Friday kind of life, it's almost as though we and those around us kind of set aside maybe our, our religious presuppositions, and we can kind of have this abstract, academic, neutral kind of chess match out there in the world. But that's not how we see things work in the Bible. You know, all morality has some sort of a religious connotation to it. And I think in our day and age, the dominant religion, we could argue, is secular humanism um, and its you know, sister cultural Marxism. I think they're, they're, they're certainly siblings. And th- those are the rival ideologies out there. So if we're not going to be beholden to the one true God and his word, well, then we are going to serve other masters, um, other lords, other Baals or other Caesars, if you will. We are going to submit to someone else. We are going to obey someone else. There's there's no neutral ground. And I think that's another uh, aspect of this question, a- another piece of this puzzle, rather, um, that there's really no neutral ground. If it's not Christ's word, then whose word? Yeah. Well, the thing about the conscience, too, something to emphasize here as we are still you know, defining it and what it means exactly is that the conscience is something rooted in our understanding. It is rooted in knowledge. Uh, the word itself mean it comes from the Latin word, which means knowledge. So, yeah, the the fact that if the Bible is speaking to us, if we know what God's word says, then our conscience will be well informed, right? Then it will be something that will be shaped by the word. It will be, uh, you know, so that we understand what is right, what is wrong. And we will actually have a functioning conscience, you know, coming out of that understanding, an understanding rooted in the word. Yeah, exactly. What's the point of life, for instance? If we if we don't understand the purpose of life from a biblical perspective, we're going to have some worldly man-made idea. And then and then that is going to dictate the course of our steps here in this life. So if 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 it's Disney or Hollywood. That, that has given us our worldview. The purpose of life is just to have fun. Don't listen to anyone uh, outside of yourself, right? Just be your own person, do your thing. That's going to dictate um, a person's life much differently than the word of God, which says, I was created by God. Um, I have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. I have a heavenly destiny. And God has given me his, his word, given me very clear you know, very, very, his, his given me his will very clearly in his word. And I don't live merely for myself, but I live for him. You know, these are two radically different worldviews. And I think a lot of people in our pews have that prior worldview that I described, one that's more uh, formed by the world and worldly ideas of, of the purpose of life. Do you think that's happening simply because it's what they are bombarded with everywhere? Or do you think that 
Perhaps there's been a deficiency in preaching in some quarters, or maybe both, or maybe it's something else contributing to this. I would certainly say both, for sure. I think uh, on the one hand, that bombardment, that's a good word for it. I mean, j- just look at the uh, the amount of hours maybe our average person in the pew spends in the Word of God and in church, and then compare those hours to music on the radio, you know, influencers on YouTube, uh, Disney movies, what, whatever, Hollywood, and then just, just the, the world, right? Peers in school. I mean, just that sheer volume is huge. But then I think, too, I think that that we as as Christians, we as pastors, perhaps have had a deficiency as well in preaching the full counsel of God. I think it's easy to, I don't know, uh, I, I can speak for myself anyways, that there's a temptation to tiptoe around certain topics. I think there's there there can be something easy about merely resting on um, things that seem positive or or I don't know maybe maybe the word is 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 otherworldly or spiritual sounding things rather than practical real world items you know from from the pulpit from bible class in pastoral counseling so Willie I would say it's both a bombardment from the world around us and then a deficiency on our end and an unwillingness or or maybe a naivete or just an inability to take up the full counsel of God not merely I don't know the the, the basics of doctrine, if you will, but but showing how doctrine is lived in real time, in real life, with real flesh and blood human beings. One thing that I would maybe point to in this question is the fact that many times uh, moral questions, especially in entertainment, are often presented in emotional terms. You know, when you have this, this situation, like let's say a TV show has set up a situation where they're dealing with some ethical quandary, they will always present the, the solution to this as being the right thing to do, even if that's, you know, contrary to what God's word is saying, you know, and because people think of these things in emotional terms, rather than, you know, knowledge terms, or in terms of, you know, what does the word actually say, I think we see the, the strong influence of the world in that way, too, that, you know, we are being moved by our emotions to decide what is right and what is wrong rather than being moved by the the clear word of god well and have it, and have you seen what this kind of worldview does it turns everything into the dramatic it's very strange mm-hmm. P- people just in the last year year and a half two years it's like everybody is this big drama queen every everything is cast in the most extreme terms and they speak as if they're living in a movie and everything right. that they talk about, it's always in terms of like a Harry Potter reference or, you know, even even like Lord of the Rings or something like that or or a Marvel movie or whatever. And I understand that this is the new mythology and it's OK to use pop culture references and all that. But it goes beyond that for people. This is what they build their life around, a bunch of very dramatic people. And it's it's strange. It's like we let a bunch of theater nerds teach us about public discourse or something. It's bizarre to me. And even the individual, even the individual wrestling, you know, wrestling with uh, some kind of a moral decision. Do I take this mandatory medical treatment? Do I submit to Caesar's guidelines about, you know, what church is able is is allowed, you know, permitted by Caesar uh, just across the border in Washington, the state of Washington. Currently, they're permitting Christians to worship. They're permitting them to worship under vast stipulations. You know, the emotional thing. I think so often people look at. They look at these questions, you know, from from an emotional standpoint. It, it, they're sure. governed by fear, or they're governed by what what will my neighbor think? Sure. And, and I do just want to interject. Uh, you use the word wrestling. Now, I would accept a world where everyone spoke in wrestling promos. If everyone spoke <laughs> like Dusty Rhodes, it would be a better country. But we're not ready for that yet. Um, but Ben, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, uh, the state permitting you, you know, to even use that kind of language is is strange and for people to even think that the government would have anything approaching that authority and i would say this and we'll talk about this a little bit more they don't have or lack the authority to shut down churches simply because they're the state or i'm sorry simply because of our form of government no government has the right to silence the church i don't care what their constitution says i don't care what their what their king says no government can have that right because King Jesus is king over everything, and his church will go out and be spread among all the kingdoms of the earth, whether they want to shut it down or not. 
Yeah, and if, if they resist that, they're doing it to their own detriment. Yes. The, the, the kings of the earth. Right. Well, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Ben Uledalen, and we're talking about the conscience. Well, a fun discussion in that first segment. Uh, now we're going to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit more about the Scripture, what it says about the Christian conscience, and how it informs it. So, Ben, where are we going? Well, I think, first of all, we're going to look at um, that idea of Scripture informing the conscience itself. And I'd like to read from Second. Uh, Timothy 3, uh, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Uh, So we we see there that, I mean, the scripture, uh, it has an effect on the Christian. I mean, it, it changes the Christian. The scripture has a purpose. It has a goal. And we saw some very active words right there, you know, uh, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I mean, training in righteousness, that, that, that is an active word. I mean, there's going to be a, a struggle there. There's going to be growth there. There's going to be movement there. Well, okay, so if the Christian can grow, and we want to concede that point, uh, it's a shame we even have to have this conversation, but a Christian will grow in grace and knowledge. And a Christian is growing not only in head knowledge, but they're actually growing in righteousness, growing in maturity. So that tells us that our conscience will also change for the better as it's informed uh, by the Word of God. When you grow in the faith, you begin to see more and more what the will of God is because you're studying that Word. And so you are going to make silly mistakes. You're going to look back at your young life in Christ and wonder, wow, why did I ever hold this position? Or why did I never think about this ethical issue before when the Word of God is so clear here? But you will grow. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you're in the Word, receiving the sacraments, becoming equipped, and that seems like something that actually is intentional. It's, you're not just going to automatically be equipped for every good work, are you? No. Yeah, of you have not. To, yeah, you have, to, you have to work. So, Zellin, tell us a little bit about what that would look like. What, what does it mean to be equipped? Well, and I think this is why my discussion earlier about how conscience is knowledge and is formed in knowledge is so helpful, because then you can say that, you know, the conscience learns, right? That we are learning what is right. We are learning what is wrong. And we are beginning to apply that in concrete ways to our lives. So the conscience isn't just this kind of pre-made thing in our head that just kind of goes off whenever we've done something wrong. It is something that it that grows. It is something that is shaped. And in that way, it is equipped because it is gaining more knowledge. It is gaining more understanding. It is uh, beginning to be shaped and to actually move in ways that God wants it to move. Because if we were to leave it all by itself, it would just kind of stagnate and it wouldn't it wouldn't actually do any kind of growing in that way. Or it would look for growth in other places, you know, the wrong kind of places. But because it is being equipped through this teaching, through this learning, that is why we begin to do what is right more and more as God continues to shape us for himself, right? 
And if we don't have that, the conscience will become seared or hardened. And that's a place you don't want to find yourself because once that conscience is seared, it's very hard to go back after that. Mm -hmm. Well, and searing in that sense would be you have learned something uh, obviously wrong, but it is is such a wrong thing that it has actually broken the conscience. In a sense, it's disrupted the entire thing, right? If I if I come to believe that adultery isn't really a sin, especially because if I'm engaging in adultery and I want mm-hmm. to justify it for myself, eventually I'm going to get to the point where I can never really be convinced otherwise. And that's what it means to be hardened in that sense. God has handed me over to a completely broken conscience so that I will receive my my due judgment, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe to say it a little different way, too, we, we just talked about training, how there's a progress or a growth there. Well, I think what mm-hmm. Zelwyn just described is there can be a regression in the conscience as well in the sense that I've learned to ignore that conscience. So maybe at first I felt guilty the first time or two, but then those pangs of guilt dissipate over time and I get hardened seared and and ignore you know that that conscience i ignore it as it's doing its job it's like a warning light in the in the car or something or in the plane trying to prevent me from crashing into a mountain i've ignored that god-given role of that conscience and i have perhaps learned unrighteousness rather than moving in the right direction i start treating my conscience like a check engine light right <laughs> i just ignore it <laughs> I see that it's on. I say, okay, that's nice. And then I just kind of move on. That's what it means to have a seared conscience. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and you're absolutely right, Ben, in that, you know, we can learn to ignore the dictates of our conscience. We can ignore what God has said. And especially when we know what he has said, uh, that makes our guilt all the much greater. So yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to go against the conscience because as Paul tells us very clearly, to go against the conscience, even a weak conscience is sin. Yeah, exactly. You know, even exactly. It, it, it's it's telling it, it's doing a job, and and if if I sin against it, if I do something that I think is sin, even if it's not sin, uh, well, that's that is sin for me. That's that's what Saint Paul says in First Corinthians. Well, and that's the thing that people have a really hard time wrapping their head around is that something that might not be a sin for you could be a sin for others. Right. Right. Yeah, especially because, you know, in their the weakness of their conscience, in their ill-informed, bad knowledge kind of conscience, they believe this to be a sin. And if they go against that, even if it is misinformed, it is it is sin because you're basically doing what you believe to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and that and in God's eyes, that's as if you had done something wrong. Yeah. And so for that reason, uh, we cannot compel someone to go against their own conscience. I mean, to a degree, right? I mean, there, right. there's a time when, when someone needs to be warned and, and taught or things like that. But to just arbitrarily say, oh, well, it's no big deal that this offends you, that this offends your conscience. You need to get over it. That's kind of a dangerous game to play with someone's soul. Mm-hmm. You know, and if there's to if there's to be, you know, that that discussion, you, you can open the word of God and, and take that brother through it and maybe you know, as we just saw here in in Second Timothy, gently teaching them, correcting them, right? Trying to inform them where they're wrong, but not just blasting them, not just saying you're wrong to feel this way, or, or maybe feels not the right word, but you know, you're you're wrong to um, to believe this is wrong. Rather, there needs to be a, a patience, and and the conscience needs to be bound to the Word of God, yeah. not not feelings, and not yeah. the conscience itself. It's not absolute either. God is, and so is his word. Yeah, and yeah, you can actually feel guilty uh, over something that isn't a sin as well. <laughs> you know, and and, uh, and you get this when people grow up in, you know, fringe religious groups. I, I, and we use this, this example a lot, but it's kind of like the consumption of alcohol. Not a sin. Right. You know, uh, just the basic consumption of alcohol. But if you grow up in certain churches, you're going to be taught from the day you're born that any imbibing of any kind of alcohol is a sin. And so you'll, you may always have guilt associated with that. Uh, that's not a good guilt to carry around. We've actually talked about the good kind of guilt that brings about contrition, but this is not the kind of guilt that should be put on someone's shoulders. 
there's time for patient teaching there. The solution to that is probably not to make them shotgun a Miller Lite or something like that, but to, <laughs> but to patiently teach and to show them, yeah, this is not a, your conscience doesn't need to be bound to, to something that God is not bound it to. But then, of course, Paul's point here also is that when you're teaching that brother, you know, this is the, the way that God you would have you go to recognize that, you know, we have to ourselves bear with them and to not lord it over them in, in a way that would cause them to stumble. Right. Right. I mean, right. Paul, Paul's whole point is, is that, you know, don't do it. You know, your, your brother's soul isn't worth, you know, your drink. Yeah. Kind of well, yeah. well, like with the meat sacrifice to idols. We always like, it's like we quit reading. Oh, so this says that I can do whatever I want. It's not sin. No, if, if you keep reading, he basically tells you not to eat it. Right. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Just don't do this thing because it's causing your brother to stumble. And, you know, I, I know that as Lutherans, we, we kind of make uh, drinking sort of a, a hallmark of the faith, but it's okay to, to put the drink aside for the sake of your brother if you need to. Of course, there's a time again, you know, to show him, but don't think that it's somehow imp- impeding your Christian freedom when to, to give up something for the sake of a brother. Just don't do it in communion. I want to be very clear on that. Um, the Lord's right, institution right. Uh, necessitates alcohol because it's he used wine and nothing else. So don't take that too far. That's how we got into this mess with grape juice in, in churches and things like that because of the, the attitude in the 19th century in America regarding alcohol. And so we so overreacted to that that we began to pretend as if the Lord changed his institution or something like that. Right. So don't take it too far. Sorry to go to that rabbit hole, but that's where people would go. Well, no, it, it's an important thing to mention because even when we say, you know, don't offend the weaker brother by what you do, you know, don't drink the alcohol if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. There, there are issues like that where we can do that, right? There are things where we can say, this is what we need to do because, you know, it is kind of a an area where we can afford to be gentle with them. Yeah. There are things that we cannot, you know, that we cannot transgress. We can't just say, oh, well, then everything's a matter of conscience, so we'll just bear with anything. No, that's not Paul's point either, right? His point is, is that in those things that we can be patient with, we need to be patient with, but there are such things that, you know, it just, you just can't do. Right. Which we'll get into more of a little bit later. All right, Ben. Uh, so where should we go from here then? Well, you know, again, in, in Romans chapter 12, we see a little bit of this idea as well. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I think there's a couple of different thoughts there. You know, don't be conformed to this world, which, I mean, this world is passing away with its its lusts, its desires, its pride of life. We see that in First John. Don't go down with that ship. Don't be overly attached to this world's goals, its priorities, um, its beliefs on what the purpose of life is. Again, because this world teaches you can be your own God. I mean, that's that's kind of the gospel of of the world around us. You are a God here and now. You know, just do what you want to do. But rather, this says, don't be conformed to this world. So I think that necessitates that there's that implies that there are other voices out there. Um, there are other forces who are trying to make me conform to them. Again, who who are you going to be conformed to? Caesar or Baal or some worldly idea, some worldly ideology, or are you going to be conformed to God? And to his word. So I think, you know, being conformed, that's, that's a big aspect here. And then the second thing is um, later on in the verse, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. And I think this echoes an earlier point Zelwyn made that, you know, not every last decision that you make each day is mapped out in the word of God. That, that's where the conscience comes into play. That's where the word of God comes into play. And as we mature in Christian life, uh, we're going to learn that certain things aren't good. Um, we're going to learn maybe that certain behaviors are things that we need to sacrifice and lay aside for the sake of godliness, uh, for the sake of conscience, for the sake of being more useful uh, to my to my neighbor, to the, to my loved ones in my life. So by testing, you know, there's there's again there's a maturity, there's a growth there, 
there's almost a sense where there, there's some liberty there, right? I mean, you can kind of yeah. try something out and then realize, oh, I shouldn't go down that path. I should go down this alternate, you know, godly path. Right. And and it's interesting because many don't want to talk about this because they see the specter of legalism in it, or they think we're talking about not wearing short sleeve shirts and not putting ice in your drinks or something like that. But this is how we love our neighbor. And this is also how we engage in spiritual warfare. And when dealing with the conscience and ethics, it's there's a little bit of spiritual jujitsu going on there that one must navigate. And so this isn't merely just a list of rules. It is simply discerning what the will of God is. And first doing that by reading the word where he's explicit about what his will is for Christians and why we must live that way. If we live not in accord with the word of God, we will be in accord with the world and we will suffer physically and spiritually because of this. The world right now is sick and has been since the fall, but it might just be getting sicker and that much closer to its final death. And so we are learning how to live in a world that is dying. And we are learning how to be alive in a world that wants to make us sick and dead like it is and will be. So if we want to be alive, we must live according to God's living word. And we must live as if God is alive, and he is. And we must live as if God is alive within us, and he is. And so it's really easy. This this stuff, it's not easy to do. It's an easy concept to understand if you believe in God. <laughs> and, and if you don't, then it's going to be very hard. And there may be people out there in the pews who sometimes forget that we serve a God who is living and near. Amen. Right. Well, and and with this too, you know, the emphasis on the will of God, there is a, there is a very real sense in which our consciences, albeit imperfectly, are constantly being shaped to be like God's will. You know, this is why we say thy will be done, that sort of thing. So the goal is to think like God. And we are not going to do that perfectly because our conscience is always imperfect. It's always growing. It's always in need of further instruction. But the goal is to think like God, to act like God, to be like God, to have the mind of Christ, as Paul says. That is the what we should be striving for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ben? All I can say is amen. I mean, I think that's that's well said. You're you're who's who's the master you're serving? What direction are are you going in? Are you you know is 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 light triumphing, you know, with within within your heart, within your life, within your walk or is it is it darkness? Um are you are you listening to the the siren song of the world which you know being being conformed to the world, that danger of being conformed to the world, the world is going to seem attractive. Its ways are going to seem beautiful, wise, compelling. It's, it's going to be a hard, it can be a hard decision, right? I mean, it, it, it can be. Well, and we're in, a, and we're in a stage in Christianity where they want to look like the world. Every, they want worldly seen, respect. They want worldly respect. Yeah. So they look like the world and they act like the world. And that's when the church effectively has no power. Uh, you know, or they're they're legitimately afraid of being different. It's it's so strange um, this this need to be cool and this need to be accepted that even adult pastors have. Bizarre to me. When everywhere we see these warnings about about the world and and its ways yeah. and its attitudes and its its habit and its way of being, um, it's it's the, the, this world is passing away. It is trending toward death. It's a sinking ship. Our hearts and minds shouldn't be shouldn't be overly attached to it or else there's a risk that we too will go down with it in flames. Yeah. Well, and in a way, I think maybe this comes back to what we were saying about uh, the conscience frequently being informed by emotion in our day and age, because the desire to be liked by the world, desire to be like the world, you know, to have the respect of the world is effectively an emotional response, right? I mean, it is something that's basically saying, I don't like the feeling of being on the outside. I want to have people like me, you know? And so for that reason, I will do what I need to do to make sure that people like me. But if we are, if we are living according to a conscience that is shaped by the will of God, that may very well be at, you know, at odds with our emotional state in any given thing. Yeah. You know, we're, we're going to be out of out of step, out of sync with the world. You know, think of Daniel, righteous Daniel, praying, going up to that window and praying. You know, praying publicly, 
after he knew, you know, that that was a death sentence for him. He's out of sync with the world around him. Mm-hmm. And how many Christian voices today would probably say, "Yeah, oh, Daniel, come on, brother, can't you can't you just go pray in your <laughs> closet or something?" But but no, here here is this righteous saint of old just continuing in that uh, in that piety as as he had been. He's okay to be out of sync with the world. Or even if he is emotionally afraid of being in the lion's den, like let's just say he does feel fear. Hypothetically, yeah. I'm not I'm, I'm not sure that he did. But even if he does feel that very negative emotion, yet that doesn't inform what he believes to be right. He conquers He's, it. You know? He conquers it. He overcomes. Yeah. And that ties into Willie's point about spiritual warfare. I mean, we're not called just to be spiritual couch potatoes. We're not called to just be purely on this passive end as just as consumers, but we are called to warfare. I mean, training in righteousness, right? Who trains but a soldier? Who trains but an athlete? Someone who competes, someone who's fighting. Do, do we want to pass on a, a decent country, a decent church, a decent faith heritage to our children? Or are we content to uh, just lounge, as it were, while a tsunami of evil you know, overcomes us, overcomes our churches, overcomes our, our children? Or do we want to... Um, walk in a way that's out of sync with the world and uh, push back. Absolutely. Well, we got to take our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Listening to a, a word fitly spoken, I'm Willie Grills here with Zelen Hai and Ben Uladal, and we're talking about the Christian conscience. Well, we've made the biblical case here, kind of talked about what that looks like in abstract terms, but now let's get to where the rubber meets the road. Let's look at some practical examples uh, of what Christians might be struggling with right now. Ben, I think um, uh, another helpful way to couch this discussion: we've talked a lot about the conscience having to do with knowledge, um, knowledge of God's word, knowledge of God's will knowledge of what God expects us to do in this life. I think another, the flip side of that coin is knowledge of the world as it actually is. And I think this second point is a place where Christians often struggle. Um, I think about a man like Walter A. Meyer. I mean, there's a guy who had, you know, two eyes and a brain and an open Bible, (laughs) you know, here he's preaching against all manner of what would be considered political, right? I, I've been criticized for being quote unquote too political over the past couple of years. I mean, Wham is preaching against, boy, all manner of, you know, war profiteers yeah. and industry and all of that. So he sees the world as it actually is. He sees real oppression. He sees real unrighteousness. He sees real wickedness and he preaches against it. So, you know, do we gentlemen have a government that is more or less decent, but just a little flawed and is kind of struggling through a lot of these issues out there? Or do we have a government and a system that we know to be secular humanist, cultural Marxist, you know, elbowing its way into every aspect of human life? I mean, is it the former or is it the latter? I mean, (laughs) I think you've answered your own question, but... Right. Then that kind of colors how we proceed, right? I mean, if you are dealing with a, a system that you know to be, you know decent but flawed, you're going to tolerate a lot of those flaws. You're going to go along with it. But if you have an entire society, an entire anti-culture that is just weaponized against all that is good, shouldn't that color our response as Christians, as men, as pastors? Shouldn't that cause us to say no sometimes? Well, and the the attitude among some will be, some pastors and preachers will be, well, the church has gone through hard times before, so we just sort of sit here and let it happen. 
That's not really been the reaction the church has had. The church has always spoke truth to power and preached, and she suffered mightily because of it, but she suffered because she was outspoken and refused to concede, refused to concede that Christ is the only way to heaven and that God has a will and we should live by it. Who was it that um, preached he, against the empress? Was it John Chrysostom, I think? He preached against the empress herself and you know, certainly John the Baptist, Elijah— um, uh, Richard Wormbrand, you know, we, we have men who yeah. spoke truth to power. They, they, they weren't thrown in, in prison as spiritual couch potatoes and yeah. bumps on a log. They were thrown in prison and persecuted and killed because they were dangerous because yeah. they wielded the sword okay. of the word of God. Obligatory John Knox posting at this point, right. though. We we just I I'm proposing just a straight read of the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous <laughs> regiment of women. A very special word fitly. We should make it happen. And then throw in the wham, the the, the little wham letter to Eleanor Roosevelt too. Yeah. Um, so okay. So you said practical. I was a little uh, a little general there, but I think that's a helpful term as well. Knowledge of the word of God, but also knowledge of the world as it exists. Look at the way the book of Proverbs works. Like it, it looks at the world the way it works. Um, even St. Paul, I mean, he, doesn't he say, uh, you know, Cretans are always liars and gluttons? You know, he's not, <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not turning a blind eye to reality. And he's equipping Titus saying, look, these guys you're going to evangelize are, are wicked. They're, they're gluttons. Yeah. You know, they're, they, they serve their bellies. Uh, be ready and preach the word of God against them. So I think, Well, the best um, thing about that is people forget that. It becomes an idiom for us, a Cretan, you know, that we would use to refer to somebody of a certain way. He, it's, it's a slur he's using here. Yeah, like he's, he's, he's talking about a particular ethnic group and generalizing them. Paul is awesome, you know, and he's not you taking know? the eighth commandment and and um, and completely inverting it to where we need to lie and make someone holier than he really is. You know, it just yeah. state the truth. Like, Look at the world well, as he, it actually is. Yeah, he doesn't say Cretans live for their bellies, but man, they have the best food. We should adopt them. Totally. <laughs> well, is this the obligatory Jesus and the Canaanite woman posting at this point here? <laughs> there we go. That's a similar thing right there. Okay, so if we want to get practical, I think another helpful test case with which are related could be maybe like birth control pills and in vitro fertilization. So the the immature Christian is going to say, well, this is just medicine, therefore it's good. Uh, my doctor prescribed this. It's good. It's okay. And I mean, I may be wrong, but I think doctors do prescribe birth control pills like a lot. Like I think that's a, a bread and butter of the pharmaceutical industry. I might be wrong. That might be fake news, but I think that's true. Um, so just because my doctor prescribed it, just because medicine says it's okay, doesn't automatically make it okay. So the Christian has a knowledge of the word of God. The word of God says, thou shalt not kill. The word of God says that even life in the womb is precious in God's sight. Therefore, we should not snuff it out. Um, knowledge of the word of God, but knowledge of the world, knowledge of the issue at hand, we learn that both uh, birth control pills and in vitro fertilization do um, cause abortion. You know, the, the, the birth control pills can cause uh, a naturally um, conceived child to be aborted. And then in vitro fertilization artificially fertilizes an egg and some of the resulting zygotes or embryos or whatever, as a result, must be cast aside and discarded. And so a Christian who learns the truth about the world as it exists, sorry, the Christian who learns the truth about the issue as it actually exists in the world is going to say, man, my conscience informs me that I must reject these two medical treatments, even if the whole medical establishment says they're okay, even if my doctor prescribed them. Um, if well, that makes a lot sense. of times what you'll get is when a Christian has been practicing something that's not good for them or that they didn't know was a sin, then they find out that it's a sin. And often this is the reaction. Oh, I've already been doing this. So now I have to find a way to justify it. I have to find a way to say, Oh, it's really not that bad when really you should, it's, there's no sin in admitting that you sinned and, and turning away from that, you know, that's the better path, not to just simply say, well, I've committed this sin. So now I'm stuck. There's on this side of glory, there's always time to turn away from that and the time to grow and to realize that something, if something was sin and certain things, certainly and sin is never the best practice that don't just say, well, I've already done it and seek to justify it. Say, well, I, I wasn't aware of this. Now the word of God has shown me and evidence has shown me that it's sinful. So I must now reject this too. And if you don't, then you're in that territory of your conscience being seared. And I, and I think with some of these modern medicines, I do think some searing or some hardening is happening with our people when they're confronted 
with, you know, the fact that maybe such and such a shot or a medicine has been tainted by abortion. You know, someone gets confronted with that and then all of a sudden now it's time for mental gymnastics and this very advanced calculus. Whereas yeah. um, I think and, there's a danger there of going into the territory of having a seared conscience. We're going to do an episode soon on territorial powers and spirits rather, and uh, and kind of talking about some views on that. And if you don't believe that there is a great satanic conspiracy, uh, when you know that they are using aborted fetal tissues for nearly everything nowadays to develop even coffee creamer, you know, not just medicines, coffee creamer, creamer, right? Yeah. What, what kind of world is this? And yeah, it's usually justified as, well, they, they're already dead. So, you know, we might as well get good use out of them, which is a very dangerous and it's merely a utilitarian approach. Right. And that's, that's on the spectrum of organ harvesting. You know, I mean, that's what they do in China. They harvest the organs of political dissidents. And if we turn a blind eye to this, namely, you know, harvesting the unborn, which by the way, some of the, some, some Christian whistleblowers in the scientific community have said that these, these children needed to be, uh, these organs needed to be harvested while the children were alive, by the way, you know, that's on a spectrum of, all sorts of brutality and evil things. So, you know, if we don't say no, if we let that Pandora's box be open, um, there's no telling where it's going to go. And the slippery slope is not a logical fallacy, by the way. Um, I reject that. <laughs> well, and, you know, there's always, there's a lot of crowing. Like you look at a a, um, a shampoo bottle and it'll say not tested on animals. But you go to, you, you, you can open up any, your, uh, your medicine cabinet or even even your shower cabinet or whatever, and find so many things that have that have used humans, human parts. It's very disturbing, and a lot of people are using these innocently. I don't believe it's a sin if you're using these products and don't know how they were developed. That's no. what I told my people, you know, in a, in a church newsletter article. I said, "Look, if you took this vaccine and you didn't realize that that there were aborted, you know, uh, fetal parts were used in testing and development, I mean, you, you were you were." coerced, deceived. You just didn't know. Um, you took this in ignorance. But again, what we're getting at here too, is that those of us who have this knowledge now, do we continue with with that same behavior? Or do we, again, do we refuse? Do we say no? Do we say not by me? You know, Solzhenitsyn posting, let evil come into the world, but not by me. Well, and we get into this hair splitting because the next thing will be, well, you know, they use this uh, when testing Advil. So do you still take Advil? I don't. Which, by the way, they, which, well, here's the thing. Uh, ibuprofen predates some of this. It's just the newer stuff they've retested using that. So it's all kind of tricky, right? Okay, so if Bayer tests a new candy-coated aspirin, does that demonize all aspirin? And, and it's it's a strange thing to have to even have the conversation of, hey, did you use a dead baby to help make this? And yet that's where we are in the current year. It's a bad place to be, you know, medical clown world. Yeah. But when people are seeking religious exemptions now, and I've seen this in at least one case where they'll basically have two questions. Uh, One, why are you claiming a religious exemption from, say, this vaccine? And two, have you ever taken any of these other products? Implying that if they did take some of these other products, they're hypocrites for any religious objection they might have. And uh, unfair question. Because again, you, know, you can grow. The conscience grows. My knowledge yeah. of the word of God and my knowledge of the issues practically out there in the world, yeah. these both grow and they develop. So I can realize that I was wrong. And, and then that doesn't mean I'm a hypocrite. It means that I, and in fact, it's the opposite, right? I saw, the, the, I saw right. that this was wicked and I'm well, going to make a stand now. And two, when talking about the vaccine, of course, as we know, there's many different ones. So th- you just you're going to have to do your research if this at all concerns you, Christian, and that's fine. Um, it's, it's okay to look this up and the data is, is there and available, but you will be faced with all these ethical questions. You know, well, what about my body? Uh, what about saving my life? What about saving my neighbor's life? All of these, all of these things, but there are other conscience objections uh, against uh, taking certain medicines outside of the abortion thing. And especially when we're dealing with this ultimatum that some people have of get this, Take this shot or lose your job and your family's going to starve. Horrible position to put people in. It's satanic. Uh, ethically. Yes. You know, it's, it's satanic. And, and again, I'm not, you know, uh, we're not, see, how do I want to put this in a, I don't really want to put it delicately, but it's a lot of people listening have had the vaccine. 
okay, let's hypothetically say, you know, you, you get it. Are you comfortable with a guy losing his job and his family losing their station or losing their home uh, over this? Do you want that on your conscience? And if we can take it out of something so heated as as the vaccine, well, what authority does the government have over your body? Who gave you your body? Who made that body? Not Caesar, not Baal. Right. And if we were to treat it respectfully, wherever you fall on the vaccine issue, wherever you fall on medical ethics issues, you still have to ask, is this good for me? Is it wise for me to do this? That's a fair question for anyone to ask, Christian or non-Christian. And is it good for my community? Is this a precedent that we want to set? You know, um, what is this going to do to parental rights? What is this going to do to freedom to worship? As I mentioned, the state of Washington is already inquiring about vaccination status and basically telling churches you should segregate people based on vaccination status. We don't want to go down that road. Um, and, And when we see the pattern, when we have our eyes open, like Walter A. Meyer, like the church fathers, like Luther, when we have our eyes open and see the patterns of evil out there in the world, we know that just two shots is not going to be enough. We know that companies that employ 100 people is not going to be the upward ceiling on this, that that our, our, our liberty to, to live as children of God under God, liberty, but liberty under God, that that liberty is going to be restricted more and more and more, just like an anaconda coiling around its prey. We don't want that for our community. And what the devil wants to do is to get us to be very myopic and only focus on, just focus on on the vaccine, just focus on the mask, just focus on this climate issue or whatever. Because when you're doing that, he's going to be able to accomplish his big picture goals, which is enslavement at the end of the day, tyranny and control. And tyranny is not a good thing. Pretty much roundly condemned in the scriptures. I mean, tyranny is its own form of lawlessness. Yeah, you, you know right. when 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 Caesar claims unlimited, unrestricted control again over your body, over your conscience, right? When when Caesar claims that he can judge your conscience, oh, you've taken Advil before, oh, you're a hypocrite about this shot issue. Caesar is making himself into a god, um, and he is making trying to make himself lord over your body, over your soul, over your conscience, over your decisions. We also need to be careful with the issues at hand too, because. Uh, very often what's happening is, is it's being presented as this hypothetical issue that may not affect you directly. Okay, so like let's say with uh, the vaccine for companies of 100 employees or more, you know, that, that only affected, I forget what percentage of the economy it was supposed to do. It was a pretty big percent, but it wasn't everybody. And so maybe we say, okay, in that case, we'll say, yeah, maybe they can decide that. But then the next step comes and then the next step comes. And it's very deliberate what they're doing with that, because by getting you to agree to this hypothetical, which doesn't affect you directly, they're trying to get you to avoid the issue and kind of implicitly go along with it so that your conscience is is slowly being led towards what they want you to finally accept. People are being groomed. People are being psychologically you know, conditioned to do this. It's that one. You're exactly right. I mean, two years ago, three years ago, if you would have told any Missouri Synod Lutheran, hey, there's a, uh, a sickness that uh, 99.9% of people survive and it's going to break out and the government is going to lock you in your house and give you all these stipulations and not let you go to worship over this thing. I mean, if, if people heard that hypothetical three years ago, I think people would have been up in arms. But when it came to pass in real life, when push came to shove and there was this incrementalism and this myopia and this manipulation, we caved. And, you know, I include myself in there. I didn't know what to expect at first. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wasn't, I was caught flat footed. I'm not going to, I'm not up here all high and mighty, um, but I want to do better now. You know, I want to do better now, knowing what I've learned. You know, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We've been talking about conscience a lot. And, and at the heart of that is Christian liberty. And we hoot and we holler, as Lutherans, about the conscience and liberty a lot. And when it was actually time to stand up for it, we have heard crickets for the most part. We have heard crickets from our higher-ups. Crickets. And uh, I wish it was crickets. At least it would be some noise. But in many cases, in certain districts even, we heard nothing. And so churches were caught flat-footed. Pastors didn't know what to do. They've all been on their own. Where Where is it? We Don't we pay somebody to talk about liberty? Uh, religious liberty? Where where are the big statements about keeping churches open? We can, th- there might've been one or two that came out late, right? 
but they're always very carefully worded. Now, if there's a big news crisis, we're not so carefully wording our things, are we? And so the, it's up to the local church, the local pastors, the local people to keep things alive. And I understand, and I'm going to hear the argument now, well, how can a national church body make a comment on uh, something that affects 50 states and all 50 states have different regulations? Here's how you do it. Christians must meet. It is our right to do so. You need Jesus Christ more than anything. You need the body and blood of Christ more than anything. So whatever state you live in, you need to gather around the word and sacrament. There, that's the statement for all 50 states. You don't have to parse regulations. You don't have to to hide behind, well, I don't know what Illinois is doing. It's different from Florida, so I'm just going to be quiet. You come out and say, we need this. And I encourage every pastor to, to stay open. That's what you do. Right. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it should be that, uh, that it should be that difficult. And I know that when we speak out on stuff like this, you know, sometimes the hammer comes down on us. But my goodness, I wish that we had one ounce of the energy that we did for Yankee Stadium to protect, he put toward protecting uh, the churches and keeping them open and keeping the sheep safe from the wolf the wolves, rather, that have snatched them away during the recent unpleasantness. Yeah. And, I mean, we all know where we stand on Yankee Stadium, but think about how much we wrote it, how much debate and the ethics of this and the ethics of that over that debacle. And yet we're not having a great public conversation on this. It's getting better than it was. But we went months and months into this. You know, and then it heard, depending on what district you're in, hardly anything. I mean, we're all all three in different ones, and we've some of us have switched districts since then. But you guys know it's true. Well, and and again, it comes to issues like with life issues, for example. You know, we we hear leadership talking about those things all the time, which they should, which is absolutely right for them to do so. You know, when it comes to issues of homosexuality, we hear leadership talking about these things all the time, which is right, which is what they should do. It's right to do so. But why do they, like you say, why do they not bring that same kind of energy to an issue that is pressing and is, is very much more live in many cases for our laity in this moment than those other things? And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about those things. We do. But let's not be selective about what things we want to get worked up over. Right. And now's the time to take those words that we meant, that, that we always use about these things and put them into practice. Okay, now we have a concrete example where we can apply these ethics. Well, now we're just going to be quiet about it. (laughs) No, we're going to work diligently behind the scenes. We'll talk to some lobbyists. We'll court them for dinner, and I'm sure we'll be able to legislate our way out of this. Laying on the sarcasm button pretty pretty hard there. It's it's all a show is what it is. So. So what what shall we do then? How do we proceed? You know, what what is the Christian to do um, in in light of all of this? I want to end on a negative note, Ben. Yeah, so just- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would I would do some more some more revelation posting. Revelation uh, fourteen verse twelve. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Walk in God's ways, believe in Jesus Christ, say no to tyrants, uh, go about your business as a child of God, listen to your conscience, listen to the word of God, gird up your loins, be a man take a stand and commend all things to God. And folks, Jesus wins. It's going to be better. Boom. And every tongue that's wagging now that shouldn't be will be silenced. And soon enough, we'll be able to proclaim in loud voices of praise before the very feet and face of Jesus. Praise for all that he's done for us. So it is going to get better. In this uh, tense and kind of a uh, bummer of an episode, it's going to be all right. Well, Ben, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. It was a very fun one. Uh, we should we shouldn't uh, go so long without having you back next time. That sounds good, and I need to beat Aaron Uphoff in uh, being on more episodes than him. So I'll I'll see what I can do, and <laughs> maybe we can uh, maybe we can meet again sometime in the near very future. Very good. <laughs> well, this has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Ben Uladon. God love you, and God bless.
For a state to claim total jurisdiction, as the modern state does, is to claim to be as God, to be the total governor of man and the world. Instead of limited law and limited jurisdiction, the modern anti-Christian state claims jurisdiction from cradle to grave, from womb to tomb, over welfare, education, worship, the family, business and farming, capital and labor, and all things else. The modern state is a Moloch, demanding Moloch worship. It claims total jurisdiction over man and hence requires total sacrifice. R.J. Rushduni, Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1, 